Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. My name is Tyler Sheff, and I'm your host. And today we're going to talk about the $72,000 dumpster situation. Now, I know some of you are starting to brush off your marketing hat. You're starting to look at the whole thing going, you know, maybe old Uncle Tyler's right. Maybe I got to put myself out there and embrace the concept of learning about marketing or at least marketing principles because trying to get in my hat in the ring for these houses going on the market for sale that are lasting about 11 minutes when they go active in the MLS isn't probably a good idea. I know a lot of you are frustrated right now because you just can't find anything to flip, anything to buy and hold. You just are having a tough time finding opportunity. And tonight or today, tonight, see, it's middle of the day. I'm already saying tonight, I guess I want today to be over with. Today, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to give you some specific examples of things that I've learned over the years that have helped me discover opportunity. And what I've learned is that there is a lot of opportunity to be had when other people make a mistake. That's right, a mistake, a boo-boo. And I don't mean a catastrophic boo-boo, but I mean a little one. I'm going to give you an example. You have to understand that if people can't find something that's for sale, they can't buy it. And when there's not a lot of interest in something that's for sale, well, the seller of whatever that item is starts to get a little nervous, starts to get a little little sweat around the collar, right? Thinking, oh man, I really want to sell this. Maybe you're, okay, like right now, I'm, I was selling a um, electric motor that came off my kayak and God, we paid, I don't know, a thousand bucks for those things back in the day. Don't want them anymore. They're in the way. Putting them on an eBay, not getting a whole lot of excitement about them on eBay. So I'm sitting there going, okay, well, we're getting ready to move out of the motorhome and we're moving in back into sticks and bricks in Key West. We found a place to move into there in Key West. And I don't really have a place to put this extra this stuff. I just don't want to be dragging all this stuff with me. I don't want to have to run a moving van. So I am a motivated seller. Okay, no doubt. I want to get rid of this. Part of the reason why it hadn't been getting much attention is the photograph I took, the background of the photograph really didn't do a good job of showing what it was. It actually kind of muted the photograph. So you really couldn't tell what this thing was because I took it up against a a big rock that was overlooking the water and the water's pretty and all that. But the rock was kind of taking away from the, taking the emphasis off of the little motor and putting it on the rock. And people are like, what's actually for sale? Because, you know, they won't read the headlines and they won't read the story. They go by the picture. So that's what I'm talking about here. And that's a mistake on me. So I spent a few weeks of that thing sitting on eBay. I'm not getting any takers. And I think that's because I didn't have any people paying attention to it. And I started looking at the number of watchers and I had very few watchers, if any. I mean, I don't know, three or four watchers. And usually when I do an auction... I got tons of watchers. So I started thinking, what's wrong with this? Did I misspell something? Yeah, the, the photographs suck, whatever it may be. And it turns out photographs. So I'm re-photographing it and we're gonna, that'll probably change the game. That said, I had to think, put my marketing hat on and look at it and go, what's wrong with it? How can I tweak? What one thing can I tweak to draw more attention to it? As I've discovered that it's probably the photograph, just people are scrolling right past it. There's nothing catching their eye. So we can fix that. But what I've found over the years is there's a ton of opportunity right under our noses. And the reason why it's opportunity is because of the idea, the way the seller is trying to sell it is not drawing enough attention to it, which is putting that seller in that very same situation I was just in. Hey man, I need to get rid of this thing. We're moving here middle of May, time to go. I want to get rid of this. I don't I don't want to have to throw in a dumpster. I mean, that's, you know, a thousand bucks worth of stuff between the two of them. I want to get rid of this thing. The difference is, is that most people just simply don't know what to do. Stop thinking about the fact that they can fix it. And they give up and they cave. And this is how, frankly, how wholesalers get a deal. A lot of cases, um, because a lot of realtors will look at a crappy house and go, I don't want to list that because it's not pretty. And And then they somehow think selling a house that's not pretty reflects on them, which is ridiculous because it's not their house. So how would it reflect on you? Anyway, 
I digress. Wholesalers will get a deal a lot of times under contract because the seller has essentially given up. That means nobody showed up, nobody's knocked on their door to buy it from them. So when a wholesaler drops the postcard, they're like, oh, finally somebody comes to me. And even though, and I've had sellers say, well, nobody's tried to buy it yet. And I ask the question, what have you done to sell it? I put it on Craigslist. And I look at the Craigslist ad, they don't even have their phone number in there. It's like, well, there's... I'm not going to tell them that, but there's no way for them to even reach you, ding dong. So what I've learned is that if I start to focus on the potential mistakes that other people will make when they're advertising things, there can be a massive opportunity on the other side. So I want to talk to you about a $72,000 dumpster. That's what I meant about the title, the $72,000 dumpster situation. And I've made tens of thousands of dollars over the years by people misspelling things. Now, I don't do it as much anymore because I get better things to do at my time and I have passive income, so I don't really need to. But back in the day when I didn't have passive income, I would look for and exploit the errors of others. And I don't have a better word for it. I'm sorry, I'm just, but you know me and that's why I listen to the show is I'm transparent. Yes, if I find that opportunity, you're damn skippy, I'm gonna exploit it because that's how I make money. I'm a capitalist, I can't help myself. It's just what I do, it's how I eat. That what's, what keeps me off of food stamps so you guys don't have to, to support me because I've always been able to support myself. That said, eBay. Every day people list things on eBay and spell things incorrectly. And an example I'm talking about is I saw, I believe it was five or six sets of dive gear that were put on eBay by a fire department. And for those of you that are scuba divers, you've probably heard of the, of the, name of the gear called Halcyon. Halcyon is top of the line technical like cave diver gear. It's really good stuff. It's all stainless steel. They don't use any plastic. It's all good stuff. I mean, top quality equipment. But whoever listed it with the fire department couldn't spell the word Halcyon, or maybe they could, but they misspelled the word Halcyon. I think they spelled it Halicon or something like that with a K. Anyway, the bottom line is nobody paid attention to this auction. I was searching for all the different ways, and you're probably asking, well, how'd you know which way to spell it? I didn't. I just spelled it every other way I could think of to spell it, except for the correct way. And lo and behold, eBay, and going back, this is several years, guys, so I'm sure eBay search engines have changed and been improved and upgraded and whatnot to overcome a lot of this, but back in the day, you could absolutely sit there and just take wax at it and then come up with stuff that didn't show up in normal searches. So I found these five or six sets. It was six sets of dive gear for sale for the cost of what it would be for about basically a third of the cost of one set. So $500 was a starting bid. And I put in my starting bid. I don't remember what I put it in at, but I want to say it was like a thousand dollars or something like that, just so I could watch it. I wasn't even even seriously paying attention to it, but because I thought, well, I can't be the only one that's, that's discovered this. Well, lo and behold, I wound up getting it for my opening bid, which was $500. And you put your opening bid or your max bid was it maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred. I put my opening bid at five hundred to match the existing bid. That auction was set up for ten days, and in ten days, nobody else bid. I got all six sets of gear, and might I add that that gear retail, the way they were set up, runs for fifteen hundred dollars a set. Fifteen hundred dollars. I'm sorry, nineteen hundred dollars a set. Look at my notes here. Nineteen hundred dollars a set retail. I wound up getting them for seven. You know, I made after that. So what I did is I bought the gear, took out the one set for myself, sold the rest, made $7,500 profit and got myself a free set of gear. And I'll tell you that gear lasted me. Let's see. 13, 14, 15 years. I dove on that gear before I just decided I really don't have a not as much into diving as I used to be. I'm probably regretting that now because I'm moving down to Key West. I'll be diving a lot more. Regardless, the time I made a decision to sell them, made a killing, got that gear for free, and there you have it. And that's because I found this instance where someone did a bad job, terrible job of advertising. I put my bid in and straight up got it. Now, some of you are probably cringing going, no, you should have told the fire department that they screwed up and then so they could have got top dollar because now it affects my tax dollars. And I'm going to say to you, come on, man. 
and to get a, get a get a grip. The bottom line is, I discovered opportunity and I leveraged it. I discovered opportunity and I leveraged it. I immediately took action. I put my bid in. Now somebody could have outbid me, and that would have been well on me. Oh well, I lost out. And somebody else would have got it. But don't kid yourself to think this doesn't happen every day. For confer- confirmation of this, just go on Zillow or Realtor.com or any place where realtors list properties. Any one of those automated sites, you will find realtors that do a horrendous job of the of presenting a property for sale. They will screw up the address, even though I think it's almost nearly impossible. I've still seen agents manage to pull it off. They'll screw up the address so people can't find it. Or look at the opening photograph. They'll, the pictures are terrible because they're too cheap to invest in a professional photographer to come photograph the thing. So they whip out their iPhone or their little Samsung and they take pictures and then they do a terrible job of editing the pictures and they slap them up there on the internet and they represent this house like a turd. And maybe, rightfully, it is a turd. Or maybe they feel because the house is already a turd that it doesn't justify having a pro photographer go photograph it. And I say, BS, spend the money, get a photographer out there anyway. Not so much that you're trying to make it look nicer by hiring a pro. In this case, it's because the pro is going to take it from different angles such that the buyer can see it in different shapes and, and ways to better enable them to decide to go or no go. What do I mean by that? Let's say if this is a crappy house that needs a fix and flip. Well, if you got one picture of the front of the house, what's the buyer look at? They look at, well, I don't know what's around the left and the right side of the property. I don't know what the roof looks like. I don't know what the back looks like. I'm scared to think of what the inside looks like. And oh my God, did you see what's moving in that fridge? But if you go, if you're the person, that wholesaler that's taking photographs, take photographs of everything. Have somebody go out there and photograph it even better because they're going to show several different perspectives. Because understand this, as they say in the old days, there's an ass for every seat. It's true. There's a buyer for every house. And the more people you put the property in front of, and the more you can represent everything about the property, the better you're going to do selling it. This applies whether you're a wholesaler or a realtor or a rehabber that wants to sell a property as is because you don't have time to fix it or it's more flipped than you want to do. Whatever it may be, take lots of photographs, put it out there so that you can get a lot of people looking at it. And if there's not many people looking at it, I'm here to tell you, you're going to fail. Okay. Flat out, you're going to fail. Another thing that people I see overlook a lot is asking, talking to the sellers and asking them what else they may have. Wholesalers, are you paying attention? Realtors, you paying attention? This is this is for you. I'm gonna tell you a story. I once bought a Fisbo property for that's for sale by owner. For those who don't know, um, this is back in the old days when buyers and sellers actually had conversations and sat in the same room and signed paperwork and laughed and shook hands and all that good stuff. Yeah, then back in those days, I never even thought to say, "Hey, what else do you have, Mister Seller?" And this was a case where I was. I have a client that I have been buying houses for for I don't know twenty years now. I was buying for her, and I we got this first property under contract. We go to closing. And at the closing table, in conversation, I'd said, so what's next for you, Jane, or whatever her name was? This is the seller. She goes, well, I still got these other four houses I got to get rid of that I inherited. I'm like, what other four houses? Oh, I inherited four other houses and they're similar to this one. I got to get rid of those two. So I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I, right then there, I'm like, maybe I'm a dollar too, you know, a minute too late. But I said, hey, let's take a look at those and probably we can wrap those up today. And she goes, no, no, no. Um, Yesterday, I talked to my niece and my niece has decided that she's going to get her real estate license sometime this summer. And I've decided that I want her to sell these houses this summer so she has the chance to have the experience. So when she gets them on the market, I'll let you you know, and I'm sitting there going, great, because then we we could have bought these properties had I gone off my duff and asked the question, are there any other properties that you're looking to sell back when I got this under contract two months before, but I didn't ask the question. Therefore, I never knew. And I lost out on the opportunity because the rest of the story goes, the it was back in 2000, this is back in like 2006 or 2005, the niece being 
18, 21 years old, something like that. Of course, got her real estate license in a super hot market, listed them. And it didn't matter if she did everything right or wrong because the market was so hot, people just snapped them up. And all four properties went for full-on retail, more than we ever could have paid in order to make any sort of a profit on a fix and flip. But that goes to show you that my buyer lost out on that opportunity for four properties because I didn't ask the question. I lost out on the commission of selling the four properties because I didn't ask the question. And even though... The person did it not a great job marketing the properties. The market was so hot, they really didn't even have to. And I hate to say that because it drives me crazy. And people say, well, Tyler, why do you spend money marketing your listings in this hot market? Well, because I don't, I want more than 10 buyers to show up. I want 1,500 buyers to show up. And my la- my most recent listing from a couple of weeks ago, we had over 1,500 people inquire about that property, which is absolutely crazy. So now I want to get into, before we, we go here and we wrap up, I want to just end with the dumpster story. And guys, I'm, back in the 90s, I was walking through a parking lot on the way to my apartment at the time. This is in St. Petersburg, Florida. And there was a thrift store I, with, that was in the front of the plaza. And they had a dumpster out behind their, their building one day. And I happy walking by and I saw a golf, a golf club, like a driver. Oh, I'm sorry, not a driver. A, a, well, a wood, not necessarily a driver, but a wood. Those who don't play golf, you got usually three or five woods, which are the larger, fatter clubs, look like a fist, so to speak, on the end of it. Well, anyway, I draw, walking by, saw that, and I was like, what the hell's that? So I walked up closer, and I used to play golf as a kid and a teenager, and I thought, well, that's interesting. So I pulled it out. It was a ping golf club. So those of you that are golf aficionados know that back in the 90s, ping was a hot, hot item. I haven't played golf in a decade or two, so I don't know if they even matter anymore. Or maybe they're not even in business. Who knows? I'm sure they're probably in business, but regardless very popular club back then in the 90s. And I opened the top of the dumpster and the damn dumpster was full of golf clubs. I mean, full bags and all they had just thrown. So apparently what happened was a, a guy that owned a pro shop had kept this inventory. He died. His kids came in. So he owned a pro shop. For whatever reason, he closed his business. I don't know what, what happened as far as that, but he had all this stuff. He died. His kids lived out of state. They called Goodwill. Goodwill came in picked all the stuff up in a truck. The manager of the Goodwill, all the stuff was in his house, decided that they didn't want to get into messing around with golf clubs and sporting goods in the store as far as selling that stuff because there was quote unquote no profit in it and decided to throw all this crap in the dumpster. Well, guess who found it? He had this thing about sporting goods. He wouldn't sell bikes. He wouldn't sell catcher's gloves and mat- and helmets and baseball stuff. And he wouldn't the only thing he'd sell is stuff like what's well, weird. He'd sell used rollerblades that some of these sweaty foot's been in, but he wouldn't sell a golf club. He was maybe worried they were bent or something. I don't know. Bottom line is, I started going in that dumpster back then every three days because they picked up the trash twice a week. My total take in that sale with the golf clubs alone was $21,500. I sold those golf clubs on eBay over the course of a summer for $21,000. $500 in net profit. The only expense I had, guys, was my eBay fees and my shipping costs. But I had no inventory costs. That was 100% pure profit. And back then, that was a lot of money. I was pretty excited about 21.5. A lot of you probably excited about 25, 21.5 right now, even though the government's paying you to do nothing. 21.5, I wouldn't give you back 21.5 if you handed it to me. I'd keep it. Why not? But the bottom line is, there's someone who did not recognize opportunity and cast it aside. How many times have you driven by a crappy property, someone in your neighborhood that you wonder, geez, that would be a perfect blank. Bed and breakfast, hotel, whatever. And then you think to yourself, well, maybe someday I'll buy it. If I could only get someday when I have money, I'll buy it. And then you go play a lottery ticket. You don't win and you never do anything with it. But what if this time or next time you stop for a second and go, what's the one thing I can do to get going on making this a reality? How do I do this? This is, oh, I found an RV park on the river. 
and it could make a lot of money. Great. So what one thing can you do to take a step towards that direction? Pick up the phone, find out if they're interested in selling. Go to your local bank and talk about talk to the loan officer to find out what does it take to, to get a loan or mortgage to this. What things do you need? I spend a lot of time seeing emails and appointment requests from people come up, coming over asking me if I think something is a good deal. It doesn't matter what Tyler thinks if it's a good deal. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is how much income will it generate? How much expense will it cost to profit? How, to, how much expense is there to operate it and what's left over? And then you can decide if that works for you. And here's what I mean. You walk by a house or a, a, I don't care, you look at a hot dog cart. And if they say the hot dog cart's $5,000, you go find somebody you know that has $5,000. And you say, you know, I'm looking at starting a hot hot dog business. And my initial investment's going to be somewhere around $7,500, let us say, because you got $5,000 to buy the cart. And I guess you got to buy hot dogs and buns. Oh, and the next, a lot of you will say, well, I don't know if it's going to cost $7,500. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know if it's going to cost $7,500. I, I, I first need to get a logo and... A color scheme and, and business cards and signs and t-shirts and all the stuff. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's You don't need any of that. What you need to know is that you have to pick up the phone and call the owner of the hot dog cart and say, have you ever used this to sell hot dogs? Yes, I have. Cool. Why are you selling it? Well, because I'm having a hard time selling hot dogs. Why are you having a hard time selling hot dogs? Well, because I have Tourette's and I randomly slap people that are stupid. Oh, Okay, well, there's a guy that's probably not good at selling hot dogs. So it's not the cart that's not performing. It's the guy who's overperforming by slapping the crap out of people that ask stupid questions about hot dogs. Cool. There's a problem that we can solve. Remove cranky guy, you know, remove the nut job from the equation, back away from the hot dog bun, sir. Put yourself in there because maybe you're chipper personality and you want to sell hot dogs for a living. Or maybe you have somebody, a lazy nephew sitting in your couch and you decide this would be a perfect job for him. Tell him to get off his fat ass and learn how to sell hot dogs and not eat all the profits. So you talk to the nephew and you say, nephew, I'm going to give you $15 an hour because that's considered a living wage in America, which makes me want to puke. And ne nephew agrees that he's this is going to be his new career and he's perfectly happy with $15 an hour. So now we know that if nephew cost $15 an hour and the hot dog cart's going to be out there from 10.30 in the morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know how much per day it costs to have nephew out there. And you can reasonably think that nephew will probably get full after eating four or five hot dogs. So you can write that off as lost, four or five hot dogs, unless maybe he smokes pot and he'll eat a couple more hot dogs because he's a dope smoker and therefore not too smart. So he's going to eat a couple extra hot dogs. There's your loss, guys, right? Cost of labor, cost of fat nephew who's a pot smoker and get the munchies and eating up some of the profits. Now, how many hot dogs can we reasonably sell? Well, go to any Home Depot in America and there's probably a hot dog cart outside. Sit in your car and count how many people walk up to the hot dog cart and buy hot dogs. How many people buy sausages? And that should give you a general indication of what you can expect to sell if you're in a high traffic area like Home Depot. So now we know how much our sales are. We know how much we're going to, our labor costs are going to be. We know how much we're going to lose for the cost of the nephew being a dope smoker and eating all our, our hot dogs, that leaves you with a profit. And if the profit number is, well, I don't know, $500 a week and all your expenses are accounted for, then you can decide, is it worth the hassle for $500 a week? Some of you are going to say, hell no. Others of you say, others of you will say, wow, that's awesome. That's even more than the government gives me to do nothing. And you'll jump all over it. But you see, that's really what it takes to figure stuff out, guys. It's not rocket science. Nothing that's done out there. I'm not asking you to be Elon Musk. I'm asking you to go out there and use basic logic to determine if something makes sense or not, to dissect a problem. Gee, why hasn't anybody bought this crappy house yet? 
Maybe because it's a crappy house. Maybe it's not a crappy house. The realtor's done a terrible job of marketing it. Or the wholesaler has a reputation of being a lying scumbag and nobody trusts them. Good. So then maybe you could go talk to that seller if the wholesaler's about to fail and see why they're really selling it. Get your head in the door and see what it really needs to get it done. Because when you discover how other people have messed things up and then take the opportunity to learn what's really going on. Guys, opportunity is absolutely endless when you learn to recognize these issues. And I am assure you, issues like this are everywhere. There is a $70,000, $72,000 dumpster in your neighborhood right now. I guarantee it. But for that to happen, you got to stop for a minute. Stop trying to sign up for every $50 million guru coaching program out there on the planet. Stop trying to find shortcuts to make things easier. And instead, roll up your sleeves and learn to discover opportunity. And the one thing we can always bank on is that there are people around you every day, including yourself, including me, that are going to make mistakes. Mistakes that you can then learn about and leverage into putting together a great deal that makes sense. And we've already talked about how to break down the deal, guys. So it's real simple. Learning how to figure out if something makes money is not rocket science. Pick simple things that don't have a lot of moving parts. Guys, anybody can underwrite a, a small apartment building or a large apartment building. It's not rocket science. It's very basic. There's 10 apartments or there's 100 apartments and they currently rent for this and here's how much it costs to own them and here's the profit that's left over. Here's how much it's going to cost me to make them better. Here is the tangible evidence that we've used to determine that what market rent really is. We've asked the opinion of several people that are professionals in the marketplace. Now we know what to expect for future profits. We verify this information by hiring an appraiser to come in and double check us, look over our shoulder. That's why these people exist, why they have a job. Put these people to work and make yourself a fortune. Guys, hope you have a great week and we'll catch up with you next time. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.